Welcome to season two of Bristlecone Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside about faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. In this second season, we will be journeying into the spiritual wilds as we explore the theme of wilderness. Joining us around our virtual fireside will be some familiar voices, as well as some new guests to help us rediscover the spiritual power of wild things. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. Bristlecone Firesides is recorded in the tiny carpet-covered attic of the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, who is our partner for this and future seasons. For more info about SUA and the fight to protect Utah's stunning Red Rock Wilderness, visit SUA.org. Well then, let's let's jump into it. Bob, welcome to Bristlecone Firesides, um, season two. Uh, and this episode, we're going to be talking about Job and the comforting wild. Um, the book of Job is definitely kind of an outlier in in the Bible, uh, both in terms of subject matter and the way it's presented. Um, but before we get into Job, Bob, can you give us a little brief bio or an intro to to yourself? Yeah, I um, uh, in relation to this subject, uh, uh, which was uh, your question about uh, when I first realized the Earth was something I. I cared about. In my first years, I came out of a very disordered, uh, uh, disruptive uh, childhood. And uh, in those first years, I was something of a feral child. Uh, I basically was left alone from dawn to dark. And my brother and I were, uh, as Huckleberry Finn would say, free as any creatures uh, to wander the natural surroundings in Durango, Colorado, and including the hills and the meadows and the, uh, the mountains and playing uh, probably dangerously on the Animas River. Uh, and there are lots of wonders that I remember. Uh, I remember going through the hills and finding a wild apricot tree uh, on that landscape and tasting its unbelievable sweetness and uh, fishing for trout on some mountain stream. And then uh, because of uh, things in my, my family structure, which was totally disorganized from the beginning in terms of multiple marriages and divorces and all kinds of other things, I found myself uh, uh, living on the Arizona desert from the time I was about 10 and became really enchanted with the desert, with the beauty that was beyond and beneath its barrenness. Um, in those years, I didn't have much consciousness about caring for the earth, but I th- simply felt at home in the riverbeds and uh, um, uh, looking for lizards and snakes and uh, doing that kind of thing. And um, wasn't really aware of the, uh, the limits or the fragility of, of nature. Um, it was only when I went to college at BYU and took a course in the American Renaissance and read Emerson, Thoreau, Whitman, and Dickinson that I began both to think more deeply and to care more passionately about the natural world. I remember being struck by Thoreau's lines in Wildness is the Preservation of the World. Yes. Um, I loved Walton, Emerson's essays. Whitman's Leaves of Grass, Emily Dickinson's Radical Poetry. All of these taught me 
things about the world of nature and my relation to it that I hadn't been really much aware of before. And it really wasn't until I started, started teaching at UCLA and started teaching these same uh, writers and reading other writers like uh, all the Leopold, John Muir, Gary Snyder, that I began to care deeply about the natural world and had some sense of my own responsibility to preserve it. All of those experiences have uh, led me to where I am today. Yeah, no, I, uh, and like we mentioned in kind of the pre-recording was that Bob, you and I met at Sunstone and you've given a number of panels at the Sunstone Symposium. Um, some of them relate pretty directly to the earth uh, and uh, some tangentially. And so that's where me and you got first connected, um, which is why I was so you know, giddy to have you on the podcast was because I know that you not only do you have such a good, robust background in your, you know, your professional and, you know, career connection to the earth, but I know that it's, it's, it's a passion of yours that, that transcends your, your career or your, uh, you know, your professional world. Um, so let's jump into the book of Job. Um, and, uh, -huh. uh, we'll have you give us, uh, some kind of setup and context. How does the book of Job compare to the other books of the old Testament? Great question. The book of Job is unlike any book in the Bible, and in truth, is like any book anywhere in the world or anywhere in history. It's one of those rare, radical books that shakes the foundations of both being and believing. Mm, yes. It, it challenges our thinking and our faith. Um, Job causes us to re-examine our understanding of ourselves, and it also challenges our axioms about God. Um, it's drama, poetry, theology. It asks questions that Job can't answer and we can't answer, and yet we feel it's, uh, compelled to, uh, to try to answer them. So it's a story about a man whose faith is tested to the ultimate and yet whose trust in God remains unshakable. It involves a, a contest between Job's for Job's soul between two powerful cosmic adversaries, God and a character named Satan. It's not Satan or Lucifer or the devil of Christianity, but rather a contester or a prosecutor who seems to be a member of some kind of divine council to which both he and God belong. And Satan contends that faith has its limits, that it's easy and works fine when everything goes right, but fails when it doesn't. Uh, and so to challenge Satan's contention, God says, well, consider my servant Job. He is a faithful and upright man. And he gives to Satan the power to take away everything Job has. And, uh, he can, and that Satan continually uh, eggs God to up the ante. Each time uh, something happens to uh, Job uh, and what happens to him is cataclysmic, he loses uh, uh, all of his uh, uh, possessions, his cattle. Uh, he loses uh, all of his children. He loses uh, uh, his health. Uh, each time uh, when he, Job, refuses, uh, as his wife asking to, to curse God and die, uh, Satan says, oh, yeah, okay, but if you take away this, maybe it would. And so uh, he's, he ends up suffering everything. Uh, uh, he his vast wealth, his family, his friends, and finally his health. He reduced to kind of a, being a near-naked creature covered with boils sitting on a dunghill. All this 
to prove that Job's trust in God is unshakable and it's unlimited. In many ways, it's a strange and disturbing, but also ultimately affirming tale. Um, it asks more questions, many more questions than it, uh, it answers. So in the book of Job, obviously, there are um, theodicies. And, and um, you know, it, that being said, you know, what are these theodicies? What is a theodicy? Um, and, you know, is it important to do that theological work? In, uh, you know, understanding these theodicies, is that important um, when, when considering theological work? It's not only important, Abigail, I think, it's inescapable, at least it is for me. Uh, theodicy from the French Theodicee, that is the title of a work by Leibniz, comes from the Greek theos, meaning God, and the iki, meaning justice. And so it refers to this idea of defending God's goodness and omnipotence in a world rife with evil and injustice. Um, I guess I feel that if a person has not wrestled with the cosmic conundrum of trying to resolve that what seems unresolvable, that is, how can you uh, uh, package together a, a loving God in charge of a world that is filled with chaos and which the wicked seem to thrive and the, uh, the righteous suffer? Um, that <laughs> you only have to read the morning paper to uh, to see that playing out. And so uh, how can God, if there is a God, how can God allow this to happen? Uh, and I think if a person hasn't at least thought about this real or at least maybe a seeming conundrum to some people, then I don't hear he or she has looked deeply or widely enough either into nature and the nature of deity or the reality of nature or into his or her own soul. As a number of years ago, I was asked to make a statement of belief. Um, and it was, you know, what, what is it I believe? It took a lot of thinking to come up with this, but I said, I know that God lives. I say this as someone who wrestles almost every day with issues of theodicy, questions relating to God's justice and therefore his existence. I added, I cannot say with Emerson, as I did many, many years ago, that, quote, all I have seen teaches me to trust the creator for all I have not seen. I can say that some of what I see leads me to that conclusion, but some does not. I do not understand the design of a world in which every year millions of children suffer and die from starvation and disease, or a world in which thousands of young girls are sold into sexual slavery, or in which girls and women in some cultures are raped with impunity, in which hundreds of thousands of innocent people are tortured and brutalized, in which innocent people are imprisoned sometimes for life or cruelly executed simply for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. In addition, I'm unable to harmonize the idea of a just and caring deity with the blind indifference of natural disasters, the so-called acts of God, in which tens of thousands of people are drowned in the depths of the sea, buried in mud or volcanic ash, sucked into whirlwinds, or their 
their famine-stricken bones left to dry on desert sand. Very perplexing is the seeming randomness and capriciousness of birth disorders, crippling disabilities, and disease. I have no way to reconcile such things or others like them with a just and loving God. And yet, I believe in a just and loving God. So you set up the the idea of a theodicy as the defense of God's goodness in face of the universe that we live in. And it's funny that the, the book of Job seems to be both the defense of God's goodness, a defense of Job's goodness, and somehow a defense of the universe itself. Um, that uh, I think, I think, uh, you know, you, you set up you set up the book of Job as you know kind of this contest between between God and Satan. But on this, but on the same level, it's almost a contest between Job and his friends. That they are there are they are debating the paradigms of of how they approach the world and how they approach you know, the things that happen in the universe. So there's almost a paradigm in display all over the Bible and the world that we live in um, of kind of a tit for tat universe that, you know, that if, if something happens to me, it's because of something that I did that I deserve whatever, you know, comes my way. Um, and, you know, we can even see it in the new Testament that Jesus is confronted with this when, uh, you know, he, uh, he's confronted with a blind man from birth and Jesus was asked, you know, who sinned him or, or his parents and Jesus, uh, you know, didn't answer the question the, the way that they wanted him to answer the question. And so it seems, though, that, that this uh, this paradigm of deservedness occupies a lot of our imagination. Um, so I'm, uh, the question that I have is the ubiquitous nature of this paradigm of tit for tat suggests that most humans adopt this way of thinking. Why do we want a universe that, that operates like this? That's a great question. As you were talking, it made me think of my, you know, I've taught 35 different courses in higher education. And one of them that was fascinating uh, was a course in American Puritanism. And I remember reading uh, Cotton Mather's diary and he's saying something, you know, uh, I've got, I've got this, this terrible toothache. What did I do that God's punishing me? And so the, that kind of uh, one for one correlation, I suspect that we, you know, want to believe in that because it relieves us of the difficulty of comprehending and making sense of a world that doesn't fit the logic of cause and effect. Uh, that is, if we, the, the, the Puritans, uh, the Calvinists believed, in fact, they believe you, they kind of got, had God in a, uh, in, a, in a hard place because if they could be righteous enough, uh, then God was bound. They had God bound to, uh, to reward them or if they did something, uh, God was going to, to punish them. Uh, and so it relieves us of the burden of having to explain our own inexplicable behavior. Uh, if everything is in the control of others, including God and the devil, then we can avoid accountability for our own decisions and actions. If either God made us do it or the devil did, then you know we escape that. And But in escaping that, I think we escape the central um, uh, truth of at least uh, the restored gospel, which is that we have responsibility. And, and it's interesting that uh, this is the position uh, that Job describes, uh, his, his so-called, this is why he calls his comforters uh, as, as miserable, uh, because um, they uh, and we try 
to fit the universe into a small box that we can tie with a ribbon and feel it's all kind of uh, explained and neat. And in terms of the earth, we can take the position that what's happening with climate change, just part of a normal cycle, or it's a result of God's displeasure with certain peoples or groups, or that he's punishing some uh, deviant groups or uh, whoever, whomever. It also leads some to believe that since the world is God's creation, he's going to come and save us from our folly, that uh, he's going to allow the earth, uh, that he will allow, he will, uh, you know, wipe away all of this uh, that we've created and the earth is going to receive its paradisiacal regeneration and preparation for the second coming and it'll be a kumbaya for eternity. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's tempting to, <laughs> to believe. Uh, I, I think it's significant that in his play, J.B., this modern adaptation of Job by Archibald McLeish, McLeish presents Job's comforters, his three comforters, as a, a priest, a psychiatrist, and a communist, <laughs> uh, each of whom each of whom in turn tells Job he's not responsible for what's happened. The priests, you know, in, in, the, in Job, of course, they're all saying it's your fault, you, you brought this on yourself. But in the modern telling, uh, the priest says it isn't his fault, he was born in sin. The psychiatrist says it wasn't his fault, it's the fault of his parents. Uh, and the communist says it isn't his fault, it's a fault of society. Uh, J.B. rejects, J.B., the modern Job, rejects all three of these attempts at absolution because I think he understands that if you put the responsibility elsewhere, then all of that work of evolution that is at the heart of life in the gospel uh, is, uh, uh, is gone. And so Nichols a character in McLeish's drama who plays a part of Satan, uh, he composes a little ditty that kind of summarizes this kind of theological dilemma. I heard upon his dry dung heap that man cry out who cannot sleep. If God is God, he is not good. If God is good, he is not God. Take the even, take the odd. I would not sleep here if I could, except for the little green leaves in the wood and the wind on the water. That is, it is only the natural world that can give us comfort in the face of evil and injustice. But that, that, that formulation, if God is God, he is not good. That is, if God is responsible for all of this, he couldn't be God. And if God is good, he can't be the God that we see operating in the world. And, uh, and this is, uh, this is why um, it seems to me that seeing everything through cause and effect and the temptation to blame others clearly stifles spiritual development. If solutions lie beyond or outside of us, we have no chance to change or to grow. And therefore, we cannot evolve. Yeah, no, that, um, it reminds me of, uh, oh, what's his name? The scapegoat mechanism. What uh, do you know? Who is that guy that? Uh, uh, there's some sociologist that that he uh, he talks about the scapegoat mechanism in human sociology, and it's our 
our proclivity as humans to externalize blame and to put blame somewhere mm-hmm. else. When the truth mm-hmm. of the gospel, as Jesus was trying to, to explain it, was no, you internalize that, you internalize your own participation in all of this. And then that's ultimately what the the heart of the gospel is, is it's is it's it's trying to resolve our woundedness and our pain on the inside of our, ourselves instead of living it onto other people and externalizing it. Gerard, Rene Gerard, that's his name. Yeah. Well, we do that very early. Uh, who broke this glass? The dog did, Mama. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't me. It wasn't me. <laughs> uh, but then as adults, when we do that, we take, essentially, we strip the, the meaning from life. Because if we're not responsible, then we also are not responsible for producing joy and love and all of those things. And we want to take credit for the good things, and we want to blame the bad things on other people or on chance or on something else. In fact, one of the things, the thing, one of the questions you said is that um, there's something about this paradigm that ultimately holds us back, which is why Jesus, God, most wisdom teachers ask us to leave it behind. And you say, why is this way of looking at the world spiritually stifling? Stifling. I really thought about that, and I. I think that it's stifling because, it, it kind of referring to what I just said, it runs counter to the entire plan of heaven, or as Latter-day Saints call it, plan of happiness, which is premised on individual and communal spiritual growth. That is, such growth can't take place without the burden of choice and responsibility, without trial and error, without sacrifice and pain, without mistakes and forgiveness, without mercy and grace. We're sent here to learn how to learn from our mistakes, from our sins, from our transgressions. Uh, and a world without those, uh, then we can't have the other. We, you know, this is this great thing of Father Lehi. You can't have the bitter without, uh, uh, or the sweet without the bitter. There must needs be opposition in all things. And it is out of that opposition, out of that cauldron, out of that uh, um, uh, chemistry and alchemy of life that we uh, can produce the wonderful things that is possible for us to produce as human beings, uh, sometimes by ourselves and sometimes with the help of others and certainly with the help of God. Yeah, I wondered too if it if it gives us an artificial sense of control over our environment too, um, in that it, it instigates this way of thinking that if I can limit or reduce everything to something that is just simply cause and effect that then you know you know exactly the outcome of your actions but also the actions of others and then you can limit it to this kind of dualistic presence within the world of okay these things are good these things are bad and therefore when someone does something bad it will inevitably result in something bad but i i think that that also like you said um, you know, limits our agency and, and limits like the possibilities uh, for goodness too, in that, in that very same sense that um, if, we're, if we're only living in this kind of dualistic presence or if we only live in this kind of cause and effect world, um, that it really does limit the possibilities um, for, for goodness to come even from things that, that may not be quote unquote good. <laughs> Um, yeah. The, well, you've hit on something I think is really central is that there, 
a temptation to have some control somewhere else is, or to control everything, those two things. That is the people who want to control the world and who amass the money and the power and attempt to do that. And the people who want control the outside of them. Uh, this was a seductive enough argument that a third of the billions of our brothers and sisters in the pre-existence would have chosen that, then did chose it, choose it. Uh, and there's something, I think, tempting about it. I mean, I, I was thinking the other day that if, I, I imagined Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother looking down on the earth today and seeing what we have done to desecrate the garden and everything outside the garden as well. Uh, the, the colossal destruction uh, that we have set in motion. Just look at what happened to Afghanistan and is happening to Afghanistan. To look down upon all of that and to, I could just imagine this, this conversation and, and, and one of them says to the other, you know, are we going to do this worlds without end? Uh, is it, are we going to take the chance of this, of these other worlds? You know, this, this one we are told in the book of Moses, I believe this is the most wicked of all of the worlds that God has uh, created. Hopefully there's none more wicked, but it's hard to imagine in a way a more wicked one than this. And you can imagine saying, you know, I wonder that, that idea that, uh, Lucifer had, you know, it might be worth rethinking that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think that there is a, uh, there is nat naturally a wish to control things and to control people. And this is why you have in politics, especially, but you also have it in religion, people who want to control everything, including thought. And, uh, and then that you know, leads to an inevitable disaster. So, but you're right, uh, Abigail. That's uh, that's something that we, uh, uh, we, I think, we are inclined to, and have to resist. I, uh, I'm, I'm thinking right now of the uh, the natural man, how the natural man is an enemy of God, and I think maybe a if we were to, uh, you know, what's a, a synonym for the natural man? I like to think ego. Ego is, a is the natural man, and the ego wants three things. The ego wants superiority, it wants separation, and it wants control. And the more mm -hmm. uh, the more control, uh, you know, at least even if it's false control, you know, if it's just a paradigm of of, of way that I can scheme, you know, schematize or structure the universe so that it makes sense, that it maintains my my paradigm of control, then my ego is really happy. And ultimately, I think what God wants from us is a surrendering, and a surrendering means letting go of control. Um, I think about something Richard Rohr says um, is uh, that the the purpose of good theology is to keep God free for man and to keep man free for God, and that we can preserve mm. those two independent freedoms. And you know, in this season when we're talking about wilderness, I think you know, for God and for humans to be wild, I think means for to be free. I think that there's kind of a corollary there between wildness and, and freedom and not kind of the, the glib freedom of, you know, the, you know, the, of, Amer of American like political freedom, but like the true spiritual kind of freedom of inner joy and the stuff that we've already been talking about. Hey all. 
Thanks for joining us around the fireside to talk about things big and small. An important part of Bristlecone Firesides is putting our faith and spirituality in contact with the earth that unites us. So we'd love to keep in touch with you in the future, whether it's to share a simple call to action, send an occasional exclusive behind the scenes update, or ask you for your input on the future direction of Bristlecone Firesides. To stay in the loop, text us the phrase Fireside Utah to 52886. We won't fill up your messages, but when we do send you something, we promise it's going to be good. That's F-I-R-E-S-I-D-E, Utah, to 52886. As we, we can continue the story of Job, um, that, you know, we've kind of done a good job of setting up what the initial paradigm of, you know, Job and his friends are working with, with, with the world, this tit for, tit for tat kind of controlling paradigm. Um, but God's response to Job, um, is very, very different from all of that. And so, uh, and God, God's voice comes from the whirlwind. It comes from nature. Uh, and so my, the first question is, what is the significance of God speaking from a whirlwind, especially considering that in first Kings, um, it's goes out, you know, the, 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 the verses go out of their way to say that God's voice was not in the earthquake. It was not in the wind. It was not, you know, in the fire, but it was a still, still small voice. And so there seems to be some kind of internal tension in where God's voice is located. And so my, you know, what is the significance of God actually speaking from a whirlwind? Now, I, I like to think, uh, Madison, that initially God was speaking with a still small voice <laughs> that, uh, Job didn't hear. <laughs> and uh, uh, he kept getting louder and louder. And it's that's probably that's uh, probably a good take. Yeah, and so God then speaks from the whirlwind. It's interesting. The whirlwind is a symbol of evolution, uh, uh, I, it, but an evolution which is beyond human control and an evolution that's directed from other, some other or higher power. Therefore, it stands both for God's power and human powerlessness. That is one of the things God keeps trying to tell Job is, I'd love to tell you the meaning of suffering, but Job, that's a graduate uh, school uh, lesson and you're still in the first grade. Um, and so according to the dictionary of symbols, the whirlwind is quote, characterized by spiral or helicoid movements, expressing the dynamism of interestingly, the three dimensional cross. Now, three-dimensional cross is a cross that has an upward and then uh, motion. Then it has the, the two crossbars. It's one of the one of the kinds of crosses. That is its length and width and depth. So these are qualities that constitute a kind of multi-dimensional person, as well as a multi-dimensional savior. And therefore, it's symbolic of universal evolution. And and God is speaking to him out of this whirlwind, uh, which Job is, you know, I, I'm sure frightened by, but does not understand. It's a language he has not prepared himself to understand. And, and this, this scripture reminds us of the scripture from Hosea that they have sown the wind. Those who have sown the wind will inherit the whirlwind. Or and that I think we can say is a warning that we can expect to suffer serious consequences because of our wrong choices and bad actions, this idea of the wind. 
and I think this is particularly appropriate in relation to climate chaos and, and collapse that that has been increasingly upon us because we have chosen both to be selfish and to be indifferent to the choices we have made and we're continuing to make in relation to the earth. That is our, our current our current sowing of the wind of inaction and indifference will surely reap a whirlwind of planet desecration with a consequent human and animal death and devastation. So I think you can see the whirlwind in, in multiple ways. And I think it's kind of, it's a very rich uh, metaphor. Yeah, I, uh, I think what's so unique about God's response uh, from the whirlwind is, uh, and honestly, which is why Job is one of my favorite books, um, is that God's response to Job is almost a subversion of the question that Job, you know, presents to him. G God takes Job on a mm -hmm. tour of the cosmos. Um, and so, uh, in what way is a touring the cosmos, um, a, an answer to the problem of human suffering and the problem of God's goodness and the goodness of Job? How is, how is that, you know, a, uh, a response? Well, I think it's a wonderful way, actually. I mean, it's very profound. I mean, it's interesting that we, uh, from the time I was young, I kept hearing people talk about the patience of Job. Job is one of the most impatient people who lived. He just keeps begging and badgering God. <laughs> and uh, and so what essentially I thought he's asking is this powerful series of questions or challenges Um it's kind of, uh, uh, and, and it's, it's really significant that he uses the world of nature to ask these questions. Uh, and, and because I think as we, we think, we, we see ourselves as so powerful, but you know, here in California, every year now, we're having these enormous fires that we are powerless to stop. Uh, and, uh, you know, Anyone has to be humbled by the uh, uh, by the just the, the enormous power of nature. That just you know, what can we do except sit back and hope we can find a boat to save us or find something else that will uh, do it. So I think that in some ways, the, uh, the, the I like to contrast what is happening with this. Uh, uh, this appeal to nature. I mean, essentially what God is saying in Job, Job, if you knew enough, I could tell you the answer to your question. But you, you, it's impossible. You and I are speaking really very different languages. You know, Paul speaks, talks about people speaking into the wind. Well, Job is speaking into the whirlwind, and the whirlwind is answering him and he has no vocabulary. He has no experience. He, uh, it's like trying to explain theodicy to a five-year-old. Uh, the five-year-old has no experience in which to understand that profound question. They have not yet begun to see the complexity, the contradictions, the, uh, the conundra of the world. It's all, you know, they're, they, to them, it's uh, very simple, black and white, uh, good and bad, and this is why we appeal to them on a more primitive basis. If you eat your spinach, then you will get that. Uh, and so 
I, I like to think that the answer to Job, or to, yeah, to Job's question, in a way, uh, it can be seen in you know, one of your questions about uh, Moses 7, uh, which is uh, the interplay between theodicy and the answers found in Job versus those found in the seventh chapter of Moses. I think it's a, it's a great question. It's a huge question. And I think it's particularly important in relation to the question of theodicy and its relation to the earth and to earth stewardship and earth care. That is, God's answer, God answers Job's insistent question about the meaning of suffering by asking Job a number of questions that Job can't hope to answer. In a sense, God is telling Job that the meaning of suffering is beyond his knowing. If Job can answer the questions God is asking about the mysteries of creation and the unfathomable conundra of being and the, the wild mysteries uh, of the, the natural world, then perhaps Job will be able to understand the meaning of suffering. So God says, I will ask questions and you shall answer. Dare you deny that I am just or put me in the wrong that you may be right? Did you proclaim the rules that govern the heavens or determine the laws that govern nature on earth? That is, if Job, God is saying to Job, if you have called the dawn and shown the morning its place, then perhaps you and I can have a conversation <laughs> uh, about your morning or over your loss. Or if you have descended into the springs of the sea, that beautiful image, the springs of the sea, and walked in the unfathomable deep, then perhaps you can understand something or begin to understand something about injustice and death. So it's significant that these questions largely concern the natural world, as you have said, uh, that if Job has visited the storehouse of snow, if he knows whether the rain has a father or who has sired the drops of rain, then God can begin to talk to him. If Job could understand who feeds the ravens starving fledging, if he can open the wombs of goats and deer and bring their offspring to birth, if he can tame the wild ox and make the wild horse quiver like locust wings, then perhaps he can understand the ways of God. So after being confronted by this long series of unanswerable questions about the Pleiades and the Zodiac, the ostrich, the horse, the crocodile, Job finally gets it and answers his own unanswerable question, not with an argument, which his comforters had been given him, not with an argument, but with a witness of God's intelligence, justice, and wisdom. I know, he says, thou canst do all things, and that no purpose is beyond thee. I have spoken of great things which I have not understood, things too wonderful for me to know. And I think that is such a beautiful way that, that Job finally comes to understand what God has been trying to tell him, uh, including why good people sometimes have to suffer and if God were telling that story after the meridian of time to Job, he would say, let me tell you about the best person who ever lived and, 
and the most perfect person who ever lived, my son, who will then one day suffer for you and for all of God's children. So if you want to know the meaning of why there is injustice or why good people suffer, let me tell you the story that's going to happen in a couple of thousand years. No, I just, I think that's so beautiful. And I think, you know, that analogy between the natural world um, and, you know, of course, humanity and kind of the the tragedies and and beauties that take place within, um, you know, our own human existence as well um, is still such a a tangible example that we can feel today. I mean, I feel like um, in reading Job, it's so applicable still today. I mean, we we often say the Old Testament feels so distant from us, but I feel like each of us have kind of wrestled with these same questions that Job has. Um, and, and so I think, you know, continuing to relate it um, even today, just, just the application still so thick. Um, so it's really beautiful to hear you explain it as well. So thank you. And one of the ironies... <laughs> is that here is God who has created the world, who has the power to have to brought it into existence and created uh, uh, his human creatures. And here is Jesus who participated in that and who can not only call legions, he can walk upon the water, he can do all of these things, and he chooses not to because it is necessary for him to teach us both the power of humility and grace and especially love. Uh, It's interesting that there is no real mention of love in Job. And in fact, the the calculus of Job doesn't really work because if if I were to lose all of my children, uh, you know, my wife and I between us, uh, I have four and she had six and so now we have 10 children and 19 grandchildren. If some whirlwind were to come along or some army and kill all of those and somebody says, well, we'll give you 10 more. No, they're not the same 10. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what seems restored is not restored. And it would seem to me to anyone's uh, sensible uh, understanding of the calculus. But I think that uh, uh, what's really interesting in relation to the book of Job is how God focuses on Job's ignorance of the earth and its creatures. Why does he do that? That is on the natural world. And why is this book so important for our time? I think it's a key book for our time because we have so much greater knowledge of cosmology, geology, botany, biology, than the ancient had or could possibly have had. And yet with all of that knowledge, we lack the will and the wisdom to affect the very things God mentions, the sea, the clouds, the winds. Uh, we, and, be, and, and in our hubris, we have, and our blindness and our indifference, we have uh, 
we have ignored that and we have been indifferent to it. You know, look, look what's happening right now. I want, I want to take Joe Manson, <laughs> Joe, Joe uh, Manson by the neck of, uh, of his neck and say, look what's going to happen in 30 years because uh, you are thinking about some jobs of people in coal, the coal industry, and your children and grandchildren are going to suffer enormously because we can't spend, even if we had all the money in the world, I'm not convinced we could spend it to change what we've unleashed, but at least we could begin doing things that will relieve, relieve some of the suffering that's going to, to happen. And so when the scriptures say that God spreads his canopy of the sky over chaos and suspends earth in the void, um, we have had the power to do some of that. And yet we have simply ignored it, uh, used our power to, uh, uh, to, to just take care of ourselves and be indifferent to others. And so we're quickly speeding toward irreversible climate chaos. And, and so how can we ask God to save or rescue on us when we have ignored the knowledge we have been given and the time to act and have failed, in fact, to rescue ourselves? I think that is uh, really a profound question. How can we, uh, with any conscience, ask God to save us when we haven't been willing and are not now today willing to do what's necessary to save ourselves? I would say I was at a beach not far from where I live, half an hour from where I live. And I was standing looking at the sea and I looked at a sign that says, by the end of the century, the ocean will be 10 feet higher right here. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm, that's going to right here. And this is where my children or grandchildren come. There will be, there's going to become a time likely in which there are no beaches in the world. Oh my gosh. I mean, that is hard to imagine. <laughs> But, but that's, that seems to be a real possibility because the, the billions of years it's taken to produce those is not going, those forces are not going to be accept, uh, open to us. Yeah. No, I, uh, what uh, I hear in both your response and God's response to Job is uh, there's this anthropocentrism, right? That we are the center of all things. And that's kind of, that's kind of the, the main problem of that initial paradigm, that tit for tat paradigm is that like, oh, you think the entire universe is, is, is set up to like answer for all the, the weird little things that, that you do that somehow, somehow an earthquake happened because you, you know, uh, you know, swore your, your neighbor or something like, like th th there's a lot more going on here in this universe than that. And, uh, and so I, I, what I hear in God's response to Job is kind of this deep time decentering experience where Job, mm -hmm. instead of seeing himself as the center or as humans, even seeing themselves at the center becomes radically decentered and experiences, uh, experiences himself as a part of something much bigger. Um, cause there's even, there's even that, that section where he talks where God is like, have you not seen the ostrich and how weird and clunky the ostrich is? Um, and, uh, and have you, do you, do you not see that I send the rain to, to b make the wild blossom where no man lives? And so there's this, this, yeah. this, uh, this thing that God is trying to show the, to Job that like, there's aspects of this universe that have nothing to do with you that I'm intimately a part of and creating beauty and life and, and weirdness that have nothing to do with you. And that somehow in that process that heals Job of his, his, his insanity. Yeah. 
And think about this. Um, uh, <laughs> this whole thing has so much profound meaning for Latter-day Saints because what God is saying is I'm trying to teach you how to become a God and make a world. And what you're doing is destroying the one world that you have. And that, uh, and it seems to me, you know, we've talked about this, that Latter-day Saints, it seems to me, of all people should understand uh, this, uh, this whole idea of uh, what we are sent here to do in this garden place that we have. And Latter-day Saints, it seems to me, by and large, are, are really indifferent to, uh, uh, to saving the earth. They're really indifferent to reversing the, uh, uh, the, the terrible destruction that we've set in mind. I think, uh, Madison, you know, I've talked about uh, Pando Forest. I think it's a great irony that the oldest, largest living organism in the world is in the middle of a place called Zion. <laughs> And, and that we, that when I visited there a couple of years ago, I was talking to one of the, of the rangers of the people there, and they said, uh, you know, this, it's been, it is the oldest living organism in the world, but for the first time in human history, it's starting to die. And I just, it, that was heartbreaking that uh, uh, this great clonal uh, gift, this symbol of, the natural world, the symbol of, of, uh, of endurance, of resilience, uh, which was, I, I, you know, is it an accident just in the middle of Utah? Maybe, but even if it is, it's there as a great lesson to us as Latter-day Saints that we have just totally ignored. Most people don't know about it. If they know about it, uh, some people are thinking, yeah, we could cut down a lot of that and make good lumber. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Um, something else that I wanted to, to make mention of was God's tone to Job. I think that in terms of, in terms of personifications of deity that we, that we have throughout all of our scripture, throughout all of, all of our canon in the old Testament, the new Testament, the book of Mormon, the doctrine covenants, Progate price. I think the God that we find in Job is very unique. He's, you know, sarcastic, um, to, to Job, you know, the, the opening lines of, of God's, uh, of God's, uh, poetry is like, excuse me, where were you when I built the earth? Yeah. Somewhat um, mocking. Yeah. It's very yeah. mocking, very sarcastic. And I, I think that depiction of God is very different than the kind of domesticated divine being that we're accustomed to. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting that you say that because I was just having a conversation with someone the other day and I thought, you know, we think of God as a great comforter. And then I was thinking, here's Joseph Smith saying, you know, where are you? Uh, you know, where's the pavilion of your hiding place, the canopy and all of this? And God says, quit whining. You're not yet as Job. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, well, it's it's obviously a piece of fiction. It's a, right. it's a strange uh, uh, thing, but you could kind of understand, uh, you know, Jesus at times is kind of uh, uh, sarcastic and certainly his humor has uh, has an edge to it at times. And so uh, uh, I think that one can understand how, uh, especially when somebody is as insistent as Job is, that God could just say, get, put a little edge to it. He's been trying to teach him, but he can't, uh, he can't get through to him. 
I was thinking, I was thinking, in fact, that I don't know if you know Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, uh, new uh, kind of sci-fi, or some people calling it cli-fi, climate uh, fiction uh, called The Ministry of the Future. Uh, It's a current bestseller. I just ordered it and I haven't read it, but uh, I read something he said recently, and he said this, recall science fictions, if you think about uh, what kind of fiction a Job is, he says, recall science fiction's basic exercise. Imagine that you're in the future. You look around at a changed world, very interesting. And then you look back at your own time, seeing it as if it were already history. Those people back in 2021, what were they thinking? How did they do what they did and why? And you begin to judge those people of the past, a judgment we are always too quick to make. And then you say, oh, they were so ignorant and stupid. Why, why didn't they see the danger? Why didn't they act? How could they have been so foolish and selfish? But, but wait, that's us. This science fiction, this is science fiction, he says, great temporal reorientation. What happens next is the crucial turn. Remember, you're still in the present. You can still act. That quick fictional visit to the future can turn utopian. Having seen a good future, you can decide to make it happen. That way, those people looking back at at 2021 for the future will say of us, they they were in crisis, but they faced it. They did the necessary things, and now we're in a better world coping with new problems, sure, but it's not as bad as it might have been. Um, uh, that's an interesting perspective about, uh, about the future. Yeah, that is, that is really interesting. I, I'm, I'm interested in reading that as well, because I think, you know, we often get the reverse in climate fiction of, yeah. you know, when, when the world goes um, the other direction and um, if we're to continue on doing what we're doing, the result of that. Um, so it'd be interesting to read, you know, if we are to yeah. reverse what we've done or at least adapt, like you've said, um, what that may what that may look like. I'm, I'm very curious. Um, Go ahead. Well, I, I was going to change the subject, but um, if you had no, I more thoughts on that. Um, um, Stephen uh, Mitchell uh, coined a very interesting phrase that uh, is really made me think. He talks about having nostalgia for the future. Mm. <laughs> and as you look into science fiction and see that kind of world, you can understand why you could, why you could have nostalgia for the future. Anyway, please. No, I think that's a good point. And, and thinking of things, you know, as resolved, I do sometimes, I worry about the future. I'm a worrier. And so sometimes my natural inclination is to, you know, worry what it's going to look like um, in 10 to 15 years, but perhaps um, it might do me more service to look at how we might resolve the things that we're doing now and have more of that nostalgia, but um, you know, we'll, we'll see. (laughs) But um, I think one thing, you know, in that, in that same kind of vein um, is that obviously it's going to take some, some humility and kind of communal action to um, making better progress towards, um, you know, reparations to the earth. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of that is kind of addressed. Well, some of it, I guess I should say is addressed in Job. 
um, this idea of, of humility that God is kind of calling Job to um, and, and kind of decentering him uh, as, as, you know, central to the creation. Um, but how do you kind of find this centering, decentering, um, healing and transformative within the book of Job, but also, you know, in our, in our kind of holistic reading of the Bible? Yeah, it's a very, again, it's one of those uh, really provocative questions. Uh, we, um, and it seems to me it's really so relevant to what we're talking about in terms of, of the earth. That is, we, we tend to, uh, from the time that we're young enough to have consciousness about ourselves as a human being, as separate from other human beings, we tend to see the world as centered on us. And then as we move out from that, uh, if we go through the right process, uh, and this is what it seems to me the gospel calls us to do, is to move outward from that and to center the world not on ourselves, but on others and on God. Uh, and uh, you know, it's interesting that the three great commandments, that we speak of them as the two great commandments, but they really are three. So love your neighbor as yourself, which means you are commanded to love yourself and to love God. So the love of self uh, and God, those two are the first uh, focus. But in a way, you can't really love God or others if you don't love yourself. Um, and it reminds me of what uh, um, uh, the, the British uh, poet, uh, why am I having a hard time with his name? They wrote the um, tribute to, to uh, uh, Yeats, uh, uh, the Elegy of Yeats. But uh, he, at the beginning of the Second World War, he said, we must love one another or die. And I think that is what faces us now in the future. Uh, that is, uh, we may love one another and die, but uh, we, as long as we can love and have the choice of loving, I think there is hope for us. And that happens when, uh, when we move uh, the, the center of our compassion away from ourselves to others and decenter. Um, I mean, it's the whole thing about Christ. I mean, I, one of the things that I find profound about the temple is that uh, the temple is a series of steps this, this occurred to me many, many years ago. It's really when you did the Washington anointing before you did the endowment uh, ceremony and there were other gestures and uh, uh, ritual acts that you performed. But everything in the temple uh, and in the temple ceremony moves toward the center. Uh, you move toward the center of the temple physically uh, and uh, uh, at the... Uh, veil, you center yourself on someone who stands for God, and that, um, that certain of the uh, signs and tokens are also related to uh, the crucifixion. And so the, the purpose of the temple, uh, I think, and the purpose of the gospel is to center ourselves on Christ, who centers himself on us and on the universe. And it is that centering, as opposed to the, the egoistic uh, uh, centering that uh, Madison spoke about, 
uh, of the egoic uh, uh, seeing ourselves as the center. Uh, it is centering ourselves on something outside of ourselves, on others and on, on these creatures, these beautiful, oh my gosh, uh, heavenly creatures that God has created uh, to also understand. I mean, I have been saddened by all of the creatures dying in these forest fires and in these floods and in these cyclones and hurricanes and uh, droughts. And um, so I think that the God, the, the scriptures say God has put his heart on us. God has centered himself. Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother have centered themselves on us and ask us to center ourselves on others, especially those who are poor and hungry and uh, desperate. So someone just walked through your door. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, there's a, I think we should wrap this up. We should bring this to a close, but first I, there's one thing, um, there's kind of a tension between, uh, you know, being the dust of the earth, but also being God's work and glory, you know, that there is, we don't want to be anthropocentric, but, but on the, on some level, God is centered on us. Like you were saying, um, at the end of Job, Job, Job says to God, he says, I had heard of you with my ears, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I will be quiet, comforted that I am dust. And so there's almost a, a comfort that, well, there is a comfort that, that Job uh, finds by considering himself as dust, being very decentered. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I think a lot about, um, I, th I, th I think a lot about recently about participation. And I think what Job experienced was he experienced his participation in something much bigger than himself which blew apart that small story of just him and how he's got a tit for tat transactionalize and earn everything about his, his world and his life. Um, and that if you can learn how to let go of that story and you can accept instead your much smaller participation in something much bigger, much more universal. I think that, uh, there's a really interesting kind of tension there. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that, um, that tension, in a sense, I think we've just uh, kind of spoken uh, about it. Uh, uh, that, uh, and I think that tension, it can be a kind of sacred tension, a kind of holy tension yeah. that can lead us one way or the other. It can lead us out of uh, that glory and that beauty and that into something else. Um, one of the things I would like to do, if we have uh, we're coming now to the end, I would really love to answer your that last question you have oh please um about how we can uh uh you know this the, this joyful borderline craze i love the way you put this enthusiasm <laughs> at the heart of god's poetic tour of the universe how can we tap into the same enthusiastic joyful crazed love of all things uh, I, my response is and the more pertinent and timely question is the one that currently faces us as perhaps the only question we will have the choice of asking in the future, is our enthusiastic, joyful, crazed love of all things sufficient for us to save them and ourselves from extinction? Since it is now likely impossible for us to undo and reverse the destructive forces we have set in motion, will we have enough resolve and resilience 
to adapt to what seems an irreversible chain of forces and events? Can we adapt to a world that likely has already passed the point of no return? That question is more urgent and more pertinent than Job's and perhaps even, or, and perhaps as unanswerable. Uh, Job's question is about suffering and injustice that he not only didn't choose, but had no power to address or assuage. Or as the suffering and injustice resulting from our greed, our pride, our indifference, our selfishness is not about the fate of one man, but about the fate of all humanity and all creatures. That is, you can look at Job as a story of one man. The, the question that faces us is our story and everybody's story, and including all of those people in the future. So in Job, God allows temporary suffering and injustice to happen to one man. We are allowing insufferable suffering and injustice that will be experienced by hundreds of millions of men, women, and children experienced by all creatures. It promises to be a world of colossal injustice in which hundreds of millions of our fellow humans and fellow creatures will be drowned by floods and rising seas, starved by droughts, consumed by fires, swept by, away by hurricanes, cyclones, and tornadoes, and caught in violent conflicts over food and water. And this is where Enoch gives an answer more pertinent and more profound than what we find in the book of Job. Whereas Job's God is content to let his righteous and faithful servant suffer great loss and pain for a season, to satisfy the challenge of his contester. We who have had the power to stop destruction caused by human choice and to diminish the effects of destructive forces our choices have unleashed will result in colossal and cataclysmic suffering and injustice to ourselves and others and all living things far beyond our imagining. God chose to let Job and his family suffer to prove that faithfulness and steadfastness and stoic endurance have no limits, whereas the suffering we have caused and will continue to cause will prove only the extent and adamantine nature of our pride and selfishness. So in Enoch, we encounter a very different God than we do in Job and a very different human. In this scene, we also see a world of great conflict, a world with one society in which there was supreme righteousness marked by the absence of any poor, and another society of great wickedness in which the power of Satan, not Satan, was upon the face of the earth, with a chain in his hand that veiled the face of the whole earth in darkness. And after God has taken the city of Enoch or Zion into his bosom, he looks upon those who are left and he weeps, seeing these divine tears as rain upon the mountains, Enoch is astonished. How is it that thou canst weep, seeing that thou art holy and from all eternity to all eternity? Knowing this God, who is powerful beyond any human understanding, who is God of peace, justice, truth, and mercy, Enoch asks again, how canst thou weep? And God says, I created these your brothers and sisters, commanded them to love one another, and instead, there without affection and hate their own blood. Among all the workmanship of my hands, there has not been so great wickedness as among your brothers and sisters. Therefore, the whole heavens shall weep over them. And the truly poignant thing that happens next, that is so profound and beautiful, is that Enoch 
seeing what God sees and seeing God weep, weeps with him. That profound united weeping of heaven and earth, of God and his prophet, causes all eternity to shake. Were I to summarize Moses 7, I would say that this scripture both deifies humanity and humanizes deity. I'll say that again. It deifies humanity. It makes any anything like God, and it humanizes deity because it causes God to weep like men and women do. As Terrell Given states in his reference to Eugene Ingham's powerful essay, The Weeping God of Mormonism, God participates in rather than transcends the ebb and flow of human history, human tragedy, and human grief. So in relation to the earth, I believe this scripture prepares us for a time, almost certainly in this century, when God, our Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, will weep over the condition of this beautiful earth they have prepared for us and that we have spoiled. Most of all, it challenges us to love one another, no matter how high the seas rise, how many people are swept away in floods, how many forests are immolated by fire, how many refugees are teeming at our borders, and how many animal carcasses litter our landscapes. Whatever questions or challenges we face, even our own deaths, the most important question we have to ask now and in the future is, will we choose to love? At the end of his adaptation of Job, Maklish asked Sarah, Job's wife, speak these words, blow on the coal of the heart. The candles in churches are out. The lights have gone out of the sky. Blow on the coal of the heart and we'll see by and by. And Job responds, We'll see where we are. The wit won't burn, and the wet soul smolders. Blow on the call of a heart, and we'll know. We'll know. And I conclude by saying, we can all do that. Blow on the calls of our hearts, or in a more appropriate imagery for the good of the earth, let us blow on the warmth of the sunlight that's in our hearts and warm our souls. That is something we can do. Blow on the coals on the sun of the heart, and we'll know, we'll know. Thank you for joining us in the Spiritual Wilds on this episode of Bristlecone Firesides. If you're vibing with this podcast, please share widely with your friends, family, and neighbors, and consider leaving us a five-star rating or written review through the podcasting app of your choice. Screenshot your review and tag us on Instagram or Twitter, and we'll hook you up with some free Bristlecone Fireside stickers. This season's beautiful cover art was provided by Ash Rowan Designs, and our fresh new music was composed by Brenton Jackson. Bristlecone Firesides is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. The Dialogue Podcast Network features many great podcasts exploring LDS faith through diverse and rigorous scholarship. Please visit dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network to learn more. For more from Madison, Abby, and the Bristlecone family, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok, and visit our website to enjoy more earthy content on faith, activism, and belonging to the earth. From the Red Rock Deserts and high mountains of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to become one with this good and wild earth.
Hi, this is Eric of Face and Hat, a member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, and I was trying to think of a reason why you might want to listen to Face and Hat, and and frankly, um, call it false humility, call it a stupor of thought, but I was having a rough time, so I decided to ask a friend of the show, David O. McKay, if he would be so kind. Have you ever sat down and talked with men in a serious sort of way of their views of life and pondered then on all that they had to say? If not, you should in some quiet hour. It's a glorious thing to do. Wow. Thanks, man. That's, that's really cool. Anyway, you should definitely listen to Face and Hat. I mean, David O. McKay thinks it's good.